Hi, I'm Rick Hess, Director of Education Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. And I'm Pedro Noguera, Dean of the USC Rossi School of Education. Welcome to our podcast, Common Ground, Conversations on Schooling. The two of us often fall on different sides of big questions in schooling. Today, we're gonna to talk through some of the educational issues facing the country and search for deeper understanding and sometimes common ground. Today, we're gonna to talk about President Joe Biden and his first 100 days in office and what they've meant for education. You know, I'm actually pretty excited and pleased with the direction. Although I think what he's trying to do is enormous and the real question is, can he pull it off? But I've seen an extraordinary disinvestment in public schools in my lifetime. When I was a kid growing up, it was common for every school to have a music program. It was common for every teacher to have a piano every kindergarten teacher to have a piano and to know how to play the piano. And you go to schools today and the affluent schools still have music programs. Inner city schools, it's hit or miss, but it's not just music. It's, it goes beyond that. It goes to the quality of facilities. It goes to the resources available to teachers. And this is, a, I think, a huge problem. Now, the bill by itself is not going to take care of all that, but I think it starts to move us in the direction of reinvesting the resources for the kids. And this is, I think, critical. So I think there's a lot here, but you just talked about as kind of one of the Biden for America plans. I can't even keep them straight. There's this two trillion and that two trillion. And then there's also kind of retrospective how we think he did on stuff the first hundred days. But let's start with where you've got us. So I, I hear you. <laughs> and actually, I don't know about you. I, I've heard, I'll bet from a half dozen folks in the last month, parents of like kindergartners and first graders who are like, my kid is getting back to school and they're spending most of their time doing apps on their iPad. I guess now that schools have bought the devices, they're like, why teach? And so I hear you. And like the kindergartner teacher and the piano and like doing those things and investing in that, I'm with you. I have two, two places I would really push back hard though. One is I feel like that's been more how the dollars have been spent rather than the absence of the dollars. We're spending today a lot more per pupil after inflation than when we spent like when you were a kid or I was a kid. So we've got more money. We're just not spending it on those things that you talked about. And I'm not confident that the Biden money will be spent well. And then the second thing, the way Biden is framing this, it feels like a giant infusion of cash into bureaucracies rather than a model of how we're going to put hundreds of billions of dollars out there in a way that actually is going to allow families or schools or educators to customize things in ways that work? So I think we both share some skepticism about how public money gets spent. And I think that that's healthy. I think it's important, especially at the local level and states, for people to be vigilant, to watch carefully, because we all know there are so many examples of misspending, overspending, poor spending, and, and that should give us all reason to be concerned. But at the same time, education is labor-intensive. It's a field that requires that we invest in people if we want to get better results. But we just have to make sure that we're making the wise investments, in my opinion. So right there, you got me. I'm like, I'm with you there. If there was anything around the way that the Biden investment was getting talked about, for instance, that we need to rethink the way these dollars, 80% of money in schools gets spent on people, salary, benefits, all that. If there was anything in here in this Biden repositioning that said, look, we've got a pension challenge. It's soaking up lots of dollars. Healthcare soaking up lots of dollars. We don't want to just pour money in and then have it leak out the bucket. 
into retiree benefits. So part of this is we're going to pony up dollars, but it's got to be part of a longer term fix and systems that we're going to help them kind of reposition their person like that. I could see spending $100, $200 billion and saying, all right, I'm not crazy about this, but I get what we're buying long term. I guess part of where I get concerned is it feels like we're bringing a short-term mindset into solving these longer-term challenges that, that you're sketching. Yeah, I, I hear you. And, and I believe that this is where, if there were more bipartisanship, there would be, I think, hopefully good checks on the use of funds. I agree with the pension problem is huge. And it's not just the school systems. We got police departments. We got the whole public sector is, is in trouble with this pension system. So. I don't know what the long-term fix is, but we need one um, because we're going to need a public sector still. But I do think other branches of government really need to be vigilant about the, the ways in which this money gets spent. The fear I have is if it's misspent, the people say, we're not going to do that again. It's not a good use of public dollars. And when you put it that way, I mean, right, this seems for like those of us on the right and left who really believe in investing in education. Seems there should be like a natural win-win here, right? That like, instead of just, we're gonna put half a trillion dollars over 10 years into it and hey, have at it guys. That it's like, let's invest these dollars. Let's, we've got it. We've got to get our hands around this pension thing. There's probably different solutions in blue states and red states, but that's fine. Your point's exactly right. It's public services more broadly. So that would seem like a good part of this. It seems like there should be a natural right left interest in how do we get good reporting on how these dollars are actually used? And there's at least the 10 Republicans in the Senate who've said, look, we're willing to spend $700 billion on the infrastructure piece. And to me, that sounds like the right number. I realize to my Democratic friends, that sounds way too small. But it seems like we can negotiate in good faith there. If $700 billion is too small to get a deal done, that's fair. But I think it's both negotiating on the amount and also negotiating in a way that these things that we're talking about that these actually are long-term solutions and not just the short-term infusion of cash. Yeah. The dollar figures themselves make my head spin. And so I have no way of, uh, of knowing how much is too much or not enough. But I do know, I mean, I've, I've been watching just the way the cost of the high-speed rail system in California just continues to go up. But it's hard to argue against it because you do need mass transit. Same time, why, is it, why do the costs keep going up? I've seen the same thing happen with school construction. The, the costs just keep going up and up and up. So I don't know what to make of these dollars. Yeah. What's the high-speed rail? What's the price tag up to now? And right, it's for like Sacramento to somebody's cornfield. Is that right? <laughs> it's, it's up to crazy. But you know what? When that happened, like they're building a road to Dulles Airport from Washington, D.C., the Metro, not, not a road, the Metro extension, which, right, astronomically more. But that also raises the question about well, is this the best way to spend these funds? If the goal is to get, you know, environmentally responsible transportation from downtown DC to Dallas Airport, maybe investing in high quality green buses turns out to be better than spending $6 billion laying a bunch of rail for trains that people might not be using, it looks like. And so I think with schools, we got to make these same decisions. Are we spending lots of money building bureaucratic structures that might not be the best way to solve a problem that we can all agree we need to address? I think those are fair questions. But then I always wonder, well, how come the Europeans and the Japanese can have high-speed rail? We can't have it, right? What, what's wrong with us? 
you know, so they're small. They're, they're small. They live in smaller countries. This is this is what they got right. I don't know. They don't have to deal with uh, what, what what's it? Uh, the what the heck do you guys call it? the imperial? Not the imperial valley. The uh, uh, um, the, the well, there's the San Joaquin Valley. We got the Inland Empire. We got Inland Empire. <laughs> that's it. And and again, I think that's where. I get stuck so often on these schools, like on the on the pre-K conversation. I think I think Democrats have a point when they say you guys talk a lot about family. You guys being like me and my friends on the right, and Democrats say you guys talk a lot about family, but there's a lot of working families that need help with little kids who aren't school age, and you guys have been missing in action. And I I think that's a fair point. We've spent all our time on the right saying that's a bad idea and not actually saying here's a better idea. I think that's a fair criticism, but if we're going to spend all this money, it seems to me that universal pre-K telling lots of parents of four-year-olds, we're going to stick your kid on a bus and we're going to drive that bus to a school site where they're going to be on site from nine to two thirty. And if you work the swing shift at Target, or if you've got to work till six o'clock, you can't go pick up your kid and you're now stuck figuring out aftercare of like, this doesn't necessarily seem like the best solution to the problem faced by lots of families. So it seems to me like if we accept that maybe the Democrats are right, that the Republicans haven't stepped up enough on helping solve this problem, maybe there's better ways to do this than simply expanding public schooling down another grade or two. But that's an example where I think local leadership is really critical because local leaders will have a better sense of how to implement it in a way that's responsive to the needs of the community. I think we talked about this before, but the state that's been the leader in high quality early childhood is Oklahoma, a conservative state. And I've been to Tulsa and to Union, and you see families really appreciate having access to high quality early childhood. And it's often the the thing that gives a private school or even a charter school an advantage over, over a regular public school, that they can do extended day and they can do early childhood. But again, how you implement makes a difference. And making sure that people who know the community are taking the lead, I think is the right way to go. On the Biden proposal, to the extent that as this thing works its way forward, to the extent that they're talking about what you just talked about, hey, let's not try to prescribe a model out of Congress. Let's, let's make dollars available to states, the communities. Let's let them figure out the solutions that work for them. That seems to me something that I tend to think, all right, this is a reasonable investment to the extent that it's Washington saying, you guys need to add an early grade like Bill de Blasio did in New York City, that strikes me as neither a real good fit for a lot of the country, nor the model that I wanna see us embracing going forward. Yeah, yeah, no, there's a balance to be struck between doing big things that can be transformative, but then doing them right (laughs) and doing them well. When I was in New York, I was excited about de Blasio expanding preschool, but all the research shows It's high quality preschool that makes the big difference. Making high quality preschool available to thousands of families takes time and they didn't do it with much time. And so often what gets compromised is the quality of what you're providing. Let's back up a little bit. We're talking about some of the Biden spending proposals. There's the three big bills. There's the American Families Plan, which we've been talking about, the infrastructure, although everything apparently is infrastructure, who knows? But then there's also the retrospectively, as Biden tackled the first 100 days in terms of how they approached school reopening, how they did the COVID plan, how Biden has approached these issues generally. How would you grade him? What's your sense of how well he's done? 
I give him a, an A, I have to say. I think that tone has been great. It's just such a relief not to have a president that is um, berating people all the time. And, you know, he's been, I think, trying to, to speak to the nation as a whole. I also give him high marks on trying to do big things. That doesn't mean I don't have concerns about how effective they'll be and, and uh, whether or not they will produce the results we hope for. But I, I have to say that the approach he's taking seems smart and it seems what the country needed to heal from the Trump years. So I'll give you part of this. <laughs> it is nice not to have a president who is randomly hurling insults and invective uh, from Twitter and agree. Absolutely. That is a really healthy change for the country. That's a good thing. But like more generally, at least on education, I give Biden a much lower mark. I did a long piece with the dispatch the other day. Gave him a gentleman's D across the board on education. D. D. And here's, here's my problem. So one on like the school guidance, like the CDC stuff. If you remember like CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, the Biden appointee goes to the White House podium and says, you know, teachers don't need to be vaccinated for it to be safe to get kids back in school. And the next day, Biden's press secretary says, oh, yeah, the CDC director at the podium in the White House was speaking as a private citizen. That's not where we are. And I feel like there's been a lot of that. Biden in December, we're going to get kids back five days of school. And then his press secretary said, well, getting kids back to school means at least an hour a day, one day a week. And then she walked so I felt, one, that there has been this really cringeworthy dance where it seems like they're afraid to say anything that's going to offend our friends at the NEA and AFT. And every time they say anything that is scientific integrity, they get nervous and walk it back when they get an angry letter from our friends at the union. On the spending, the $130 billion for K-12, the $40 billion for higher ed and the package, there was nothing in there that said, hey, if schools are still not open, even now that vaccination's widely available, that these dollars are gonna go to family. It, it just felt like a lot of money, you and I've talked about this before, being showered on schools. And then on the leadership piece, you're exactly right that it's nice we've got a president who's not a uh, out of control adolescent, so I'm with you. But the first day in office, Biden abolished the 1776 commission. I understand having problems with it from the left, I get that. But it seems like there are much less in-your-face ways to deal with a, a commission about patriotism. He could have appointed new people. He could have said, let's put hold on this. Right out of the gate, he issued a directive on transgender sports issues. He could have done what President Bush 43 did about 15 years ago on stem cell. He could have said, this is a complicated issue where people have strong feelings. I'm going to have a presidential commission take a look at this. It seems to me that on a lot of these culture fights, Instead of lowering the pressure, he went ahead and maybe not in rhetoric, but in substance, he picked the same kinds of fights that Trump drove us crazy by picking. Well, I wouldn't say it. It's definitely not a well-oiled machine, especially on the science of uh, dealing with the pandemic. But I think on these culture wars, I think the conservatives are going to lose. There's no way... Because you're seeing the attitudes around transgender children are moving so quickly, right? so quickly across the country that I don't know where it's going to end up. I mean, I'm surprised neither you nor I identify ourselves by our pronouns because we're old timers, but everybody else does these days. And 
And that's not going to go backwards. Biden, as we remember, came out in favor of gay marriage before Obama did. And maybe despite being an older guy, he's more in touch with the way things are changing than, than some of us. So I, I don't think you could force these issues on people. And a presidential commission is always a nice way to, to pass for temporarily. But I think on this issue, this is one that I, I think the country is going to change faster than our political leaders. So you may be right. I think the pronoun thing, partly it depends the orbits we travel in. So my university friends, they're used to being on like Zoom calls where it's littered with pronouns. But the polling I've seen, most of the country still is like, what the heck are you guys talking about? Now, it may be that it's just moving the other way. But, you know, I guess we'll see. On the transgender thing, though, I mean, it seems to me that the issue here is kind of like when George W. Bush dealt with stem cells, that there are people, I think, of high principle who see it very differently. There were people who were very worried that harvesting embryos from elective abortion was just a fundamentally immoral way, got us close to eugenics as far as doing research. And there's other people who said, how the heck can you stand in the way of people whose lives are going to be made better by this reason? And like, they got medical ethicists in there. And it wasn't just the kind of blue ribbon commission that you and I have mocked at times, but it was actually an effort to say, are there ways to kind of find common principles that underlie this? And it seems to me on the transgender thing, like, I don't know, I'd, I'd be curious your take. Like, I, I hear you. And I don't have strong feelings personally in the transgender access. You know, somebody says to me, these kids have been made to feel unwelcome. They've been made to feel uncomfortable. They felt locked out. I get it. I hear you. But when we're talking about, say, girls playing soccer or basketball or running track, these are issues both of biology gives competitive advantage and biology can play into safety. And when we're talking about 14 and 16-year-old girls sharing a locker room, I think there's issues of privacy. If we set aside kind of the commercials made by politicians for culture war, and we talk about the principled issues here, it seems to me that there's actually really complicated principled issues. And Biden it seems like he can offer the persona and the space for us to have a kind of civil conversation about it rather than what we had during the Trump years. I'm all for a civil conversation, and I think you're right. And I think that he should acknowledge that reasonable people will disagree on these issues. At the same time, so much of what I've learned about this issue, I've learned from talking directly to people who live it. I have a student right now who I advise, and she is transgendered. And it gets so complicated because she uses female pronouns, but identifies as trans. She literally has no place to use the bathroom when she comes to university in our building. That to me is just a basic right. And to understand the humiliation she goes through to request a right to use the bathroom, it makes me angry that she should even have to be subjected to that. Mm -hmm. I think when we look at how individuals are impacted, then the ideological issues become a lot less divisive because I think, again, people of goodwill want to see people treated fairly. Yeah. I think also, I mean, one of the things that example points to is some of this seems like right, much more tractable. Like, that's insane. That student should not face that situation. I feel like even during the Obama years, this was a you know, this question of, all right, schools have to make sure if 
in bathrooms, we can do. We can build a single person bathroom and they're available to whoever. And like, the bathrooms can, are very expensive to build. <laughs> they are. And, but like, <laughs> again, but to the point, like, if that's an investment that allows us to make every student feel comfortable and welcome, I'm certainly, all right, there, there, there's some things that you spend money for. I guess what's trickier though, especially on team sports who like share facilities or team sports where if you're much bigger and stronger than somebody else, there's safety issues that can come into play. And also like in racing, to the extent that there's advantages, you know, running races, it seems to be different. It seems to me like we ought to be able to say, okay, we can figure out this bathroom accommodation issue. Let's make that go away. We can figure out some of these other issues. But some of these where we are asking people where the very nature of the exercise is people who have conflicting kind of conceptions of what's fair to them, that it's a little more fraught and that it's okay for us to wrestle with it that way. Yeah. Well, wrestling is all fair, but you know, I, I just finished watching an old film. It's called The Express. It's about the team from Syracuse went undefeated and, and their great running back. And he won the, the Sugar Bowl in Texas, was not allowed to go to the ceremony where he would be named the MVP because racists in Texas did not want a black athlete at a all white facility. This might seem dated, but this was not that long ago. Mm -hmm. And I think we're gonna look back on this period and we're gonna say the same thing. As I said, things are changing quickly, but I watch kids, my daughter's friends who are thinking very differently about gender. They're rejecting the binaries in ways that I took for granted as a kid. So who knows where this is going to lead to, but I don't think our job as adults is to try to hold the line. Our job is to try to understand what's going on and figure out how to create a most humane and the most supportive environment for kids to grow up in. You know, we started off talking about Biden's first hundred days and we wound up <laughs> which, you know, <laughs> kind of feels like America in 2021. So. <laughs> hey, good to see you, my friend. Good to see you, Rick. Good talking. The two of us have much more to say, but we're out of time for today. If you're interested in hearing more, check out our book, A Search for Common Ground, conversations about the toughest questions in K-12 education. Thanks for listening to Common Ground, conversations on schooling. And thanks to our producers, Tracy Shera and Olivia Shaw. You can subscribe to Common Ground on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a review. And feel free to let us know what topics you'd like to see us discuss by sending an email to podcast at ADI.org. Thanks for joining. Until next time.